0: If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 3. Today, having passed through the first two introductory psalms, we now enter into the the first book of the Psalter proper, and we already encounter things that are new. To begin with, we have our first notation. As you scroll down through Psalm 3, you will see the word three times, the word selah. These are Part of the inspired text. And so some will actually read the word Selah as they read through these other verses. However, we don't really know what that word means. It's the reason why it's in Hebrew and it's not translated. To the best of our knowledge, we believe it is actually a musical notation, which means at this point in the song, we ought to pause and reflect on what has just been said or sung. If you want to think of a modern analogy, there are some songs where we either between the verse and the chorus, or perhaps if there is no chorus, an extended part uh, after the verse, that the music continues to play that we don't sing. And it's given us opportunity to reflect back on the things that we just sung about, those truths that they might sink in. Likewise, most scholars think that Selah was an indication for the musicians to keep playing while the singing itself stopped, that the people might meditate on what was said. So when we get to that note in our text, as we read the psalm, we're not going to read the word Selah, we're going to obey it. We're going to pause for a minute and meditate for a moment on what the author has just said. And who was that author? Well, it was King David himself. Almost all the psalms in the first book were written by David. The only one that we're not sure about is Psalm 1. And we know this from the superscriptions above these psalms. Uh, Just as we have our first notation, we have our first superscription as well. What is the superscription? It is that kind of title or that heading, not the bold one that your English translation puts in or your study Bible, uh, but that which is in the, the kind of small capitals right above the psalm. So just above verse one, your Bible reads something like this, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, some people ignore these superscriptions altogether. They think they are unreliable and unhelpful, potentially even distancing the reader from making good application by too firmly rooting the psalm in a particular historical event. I find that last point of reasoning to be quite odd because we don't do that with any other narrative portion of scripture. We don't read through Genesis and think, oh, that's, that, that, was, that was the life of Abraham. What does it have to do with me? or the life of Joseph, or Moses, or, or, or David in First and 2 Samuel. Uh, that's never a problem in all of the narrative portions of Scripture, which make up something like three-quarters of all the Bible. So why should it make a difference here? On a more important level, I think that we should take these as serious because Jesus took them as serious. In Matthew 22, He appeals to the superscription to identify who the author of Psalm 110 is, namely David. Therefore, I think we ought to see them as inspired by the Holy Spirit along with the rest of the text. And that means that we allow them to help us understand and apply the Psalms. To that end, reflecting on this superscription, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son, we need to remind ourselves what is going on when David flees from Absalom, his son. In 2 Samuel 15 and 16, which you can go and read this afternoon or this week, we see David uh, running away, being pursued by this son. This was David's third son. And through the course of events that you can read more fully later, uh, he had killed one of his brothers to avenge the death of his sister Tamar, and then he fled the capital city. Uh, When he finally came back under the promise of safety after three years of being on the run, David would still not acknowledge him. He said, yes, he can come back. I will not take his life, but I don't want to see him. He's not to be in the palace. When I'm walking around town, he is not to be in my field of vision. Two years later, they were not reconciled, but they were finally reunited face to face. In all of this, Absalom was restless and arrogant. And he began to stand outside the city gates offering counsel, fueling dissatisfaction with his father, King David. And the words of the author of Second Samuel, stealing the hearts away from David. Absalom then moved to Hebron and began to raise an army to take the palace and therefore the kingdom away from his father David. This news comes to David. He knows what is about to happen. He knows that um, Absalom has murderous intent and so he gathers around him some loyal advisors, some mighty men, and he is forced to, to flee the city and take refuge elsewhere. On the run, pained by his son's treachery, the people's rejection and his own dishonoring David pins what we have before us as Psalm 3. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing beyond your people. Not many of us are forced to flee from children seeking our life or our throne. Nevertheless, there are times when we experience the deep pain of betrayal, All of us can feel the sadness of children who rebel against us and the Lord or friends that used to to, uh, profess and even display love and concern for us who now attack us and despise us and turn away from us. How should we think about such times? How should we deal with such circumstances? How do we make it through that kind of pain and despair? Well, David sets an example for us and he shows us that the way through is by making sure that our confidence is in God. In fact, this entire psalm bears the marks of one who sees the world in an incredibly God-centered way. And in that way, David sets before us an example that we ought to follow. He shows how he dealt with troubling times and how we can as well. So if we are to follow that example, if we are to imitate David, we need to begin by knowing that we ought to cry out to God. We ought to cry out to God. The psalm wastes no time taking us into the heart of the king. In this prayer, David calls out to God, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Now, isn't it interesting that this comes right after Psalm 2, which we looked at last week, a Psalm which is all about the rulers of the nations leading people against the Lord's anointed king. Now it is David's own son leading others against him. Read to Samuel and you'll see that Absalom already had blood on his hands. Now he's leading a rebellion against David seeking his very life. Everywhere David looks, his foes are upon him. And all this had been unexpected. It's not like David had been unpopular. It's not like that somehow uh, the people were were just itching for rebellion. No, Absalom and sin had stolen the hearts of, of the people away from David. Those who had once been loyal to him were now seeking his life. David felt outnumbered and overwhelmed. And notice it's not just the physical danger that gets to him. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Perhaps at this time, people were thinking of his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. Perhaps it was something uh, altogether different. Whatever it was, the people were speaking ill of David. They were denying that he was the Lord's anointed, that he actually had a relationship with God. We certainly know that some from the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe from which Saul came, used this as an opportunity to lash out to David, to blame him for Saul's death and the death of Saul's family. Things that David ultimately had nothing to do with. God did. One man throws stones at David, cursing him as he is making his way out of Jerusalem, saying, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. You can imagine the sting of words like that. When it was not David's desire to rebel... It was not David's desire to be king. God anointed David a king. God is the one who said, I'm taking the kingdom away from Saul and I'm going to give it to you. But now the people have said, look what happened. Your son is rebelling against you. God has nothing to do with you. He doesn't want anything to do with you. There's no salvation for you. God is not going to listen to you. Now think about this for a minute. Say law for a moment, if you will and we know this is an incredibly painful time for David, what does he do? What is his first response to this kind of trouble? Well, we see it in the first two words of the psalm. He prays, Oh Lord. That's his response. We talked about When we looked at Psalm 1, that the Bible never shies away from the real pain of life. In fact, so unabashed, so unedited is the Psalter when it comes to the real world experiences of God's people that I almost changed my approach to preaching this book. When I was originally thinking through how am I going to preach the Psalms, my original intention was actually to not go in order. It was to to take little chunks of the Psalms, uh, not in order, but by genre or type of psalm. So we would have a psalm of wisdom, a psalm of praise, a psalm of lament, a psalm of national confession, personal confession, and and put them kind of all together like that, cycling through the different ways in which uh, the the psalmists express themselves and then start back over at the end. Why did I want to do that? Because as Jeffrey Grogan so helpfully points out, in the first 40 psalms alone, there is so much pain and suffering and lament that many readers can't make it through. If you've done our two-year Bible reading program and you've read the that first book of Psalms, you know it gets pretty weary quickly when you're reading the Psalms at the beginning. There is much to lament. But then I reverse course. Not only because I thought about the fact that, you know, I wouldn't do that with any other book, really. Uh, God has given us the Psalter for a reason like this, and so I ought to preach it that way. But then I thought about the point that is being made right from the outset. David is the best king of Israel. Psalm 2 talks about how the covenant is forever. He he echoes the future coming of the Messiah. But then in Psalms 3 through 41, we are told explicitly that doesn't mean David's going to have an easy life. That doesn't mean it's going to be all wine and roses for David all of the days when he is in this world. Just the opposite. Even the most blessed and favored and important of God's people will struggle because we live in a world of evil and sin. David didn't have an easy life, but David did learn how to pray. D.A. Carson says of the whole Bible, what is especially true of the Psalms, he says this, there is no attempt in Scripture to whitewash the anguish of God's people when they undergo suffering. They argue with God, they complain to God, they weep before God. There's is not a faith that leads to dry-eyed stoicism, but to a faith so robust it wrestles with God. If nothing else, I hope that moving through these first 40 or so Psalms, this first book, that we will come out collectively as a church, a people who knows how to call out to God in prayer. Not just to talk to God, but deeply, desperately cry out to Him. Not just in joy, but in sorrow and suffering as well. That's the example that David sets for us. And why is this prayer, why is crying out to God his first response? It's because he has confidence in God, and so should we. This is the second response we should take away from the psalm. The second way that we should apply it, we should have confidence in God. We should have confidence in God. Notice the contrast between verses 1 and 2 and the beginning of this section in verse 3. The psalm opens with a description of David's enemies, but then David says, "'But you, O Lord.'" He doesn't doesn't say, but I know that I'm strong, I'm a man of war, I've encountered this thing before. No, no, no. He says, but you, O Lord. That's where his confidence begins. That's where our confidence must always begin. I said before, and I'll say it again now when we think about this context of prayer. Do not say, I believe in the power of prayer. There is no power in prayer. People pray all the time. There's no power. They pray to false gods. There's no power. Prayer is only effective and meaningful because it communicates with a God who is powerful. And by calling out to that God, we not only are asking for help, but displaying our confidence that He will answer. So what kind of God is powerful? What kind of God engenders confidence within us in terrible times? David says, you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. This is the God to whom David prays. He has confidence in him because he is a God who protects. He is a God who protects. David says, the Lord is a shield about him. What does a shield do? Well, even if you haven't seen... Avengers Age of Ultron we know what a shield does it absorbs the blows of the enemy so so that so that, whether it's the kind of personal shield that you're wearing and and, and you know uh, getting the arrows away and getting swords away and you swipe back or whether it's the kind that uh, the, the Romans had that covered their entire body and they would kind of form this human armadillo and advance on the enemy and nothing got through whatever it is it is designed to deflect to repel to absorb the blows of the enemy. And David says, that's what God is for me. He's a shield. He protects me as well as the rest of his people in times of trouble. Secondly, he is a God who restores, a God who restores. In verse three, we read, David says, the Lord is my glory and the lifter of my head. Now, does that strike you as odd to say the Lord is my glory? What does that mean? Well, think about David's position. Think about who he was, he had a measure of glory and now it's been taken away. His dignity, his honor are all gone. But what does the Lord? What does David say? The Lord is my glory. That is, I don't find my significance in kingship. I don't find my significance in the honor I had sitting on the throne in Israel. Instead, I find my dignity, my honor, and my worth in the Lord God. But more than that, he is the lifter of my head. What does that mean? Well, consider the imagery. When the king is deposed, when the king or the dictator or whoever it is is taken off his place of power, what do you most often see but the boot of his enemy on the back of his neck while he is on the ground? It is a sign of submission and defeat. And David says, that, That's the position I'm in now. But the Lord will one day lift my head back up. I'm not going to be in the dirt forever. God is going to restore to me the dignity and honor that I once had, that I might be able to lift my head high, go back into Jerusalem, and resume the position that God has given me. He's a God who protects, a God who restores. And David believes in the Lord. He has confidence in him and calls out to him in prayer because he's a God who answers. He's a God who answers. Where's David when he writes this? He's on the run from his enemies. He fled to the palace. He fled from the palace and Jerusalem itself. What else is in Jerusalem besides David's home? The temple. The, the, The place where God makes his presence most known. The place where the people of God gathered together for worship. And David is gone from that place. But what does he say? I cried aloud to the Lord. And he answered me from his holy hill. David doesn't have to be in Jerusalem to be in God's presence. His prayers still found their way to God. In his book, Flags of Our Fathers, James Bradley tells the story of the famous raising of the United States flag on the island of Iwo Jima in 1945. Even then, that photograph was uh, famous. It appeared in all kinds of newspapers across the country. And on one uh, breakfast table in one part of Texas, a man named Ed Block, who was actively serving the military but was home on leave, was sitting with his mother, Belle, and she glanced over his shoulder and saw that picture in the newspaper. And she pointed to the Marine at the bottom, putting the the, the post down into the hole that had been assigned there and said, that's your brother Harlan. Now, Ed was a bit incredulous. He said, how can you know? You can't see his face. He's not even a side shot. All you can see is his back. How do you know that's Harlan? We, we, We know he's in the Marines, but we don't even know where he's at. He's probably not even on Iwo Jima. Nevertheless, Bell said, hey, I know my boy. That's your brother. Well, later, the man was identified as somebody else, a man named Henry Hansen. That was the man putting the post in, but Bell didn't believe it. A little while later, the Block family was notified that Harlan had indeed been on the island of Iwo Jima and he had been killed in action. But then two years later, in 1947, the news was reported that they had misreported in that photo. Hansen was it not, in fact, not the picture. It had been Harlan Block. And of course, her son called and said, Hey, you know, you were right, you were right, you were right. She goes, Of course I did. I know my son. I know my son. Now there's a real sense in which David has been praying the way that he has. That he has confidence in God despite the mocking comments and the actions of his enemies to the contrary because he knew his God. God was not just an idea. God was not a distant deity. He knew his God. And so he remained unmoved in the face of his enemies. He had a clear vision of his divine king. So once again, we're asked to pause and to reflect on these things. As we do that, ask yourself, do you have the same vision of God that David did? Do you have the same understanding of God, not just in the theoretical, not just in in ways that you could type up a book of theology to give to someone or deliver a series of lectures, but a real world experience of God in this way, of one who is a shield, your glory and the lifter of your head. I fear that we so often try to reimagine God into someone who is incredibly sympathetic to us and our preferences that we actually fail to behold the God of the Bible. We fail to actually read and embrace and believe and trust in the God who reveals himself there. But it's only that God, only the true and living God who reveals himself in the scriptures that will be able to engender confidence in the midst of trouble and sustain us during our times of sorrow and despair. But confidence isn't enough. If we follow David's example, then we will also take comfort in God. We will third take comfort in God. Having expressed his confidence in God, David relates his astonishing, at least to me, response. I lay down and slept. I awoke again for the Lord sustained me. Now, if you want to do what I did this week, I want you to put yourself in David's place. Try try it in your mind's eye. uh, Go back to that... Um, 1,000 B.C. Israel setting. And imagine David on the run with his men from Jerusalem. They have no idea how close Absalom is. He could show up any minute. They, they, could, they could come into Jerusalem and begin going after him. So they are riding hard, trying to distance themselves from Absalom's coup d'etat. They're trying to make as much distance, but put as much distance between him and them as they possibly can. And in fact, in 2 Samuel 17, we're told that the first night they didn't stop at all. They got all the way across the Jordan River perhaps it was that next night, maybe the third night, we don't know. But camp begins to come to a halt. The animals need rest. The soldiers need to eat. They've even got some family members with them. They've got children. Some of the advisors and commanders come to David and they said, okay, what are we going to do? We're going to make plans. We're going to have strategies. And David says, actually, you know what? I think I'm going to go lie down for a bit. I think I'm going to take a sleep. I'm going to have a rest. And that's what he does. And apparently sleeps like a baby. There's no mention of tossing and turning. There's no mention of getting up and and fretting, of wringing of hands. It's I lay down and I slept and I awoke again because the Lord sustained me. Isn't that pretty much the opposite of most of our experience? We have trouble, we have anxiety, and we're restless. And we can't settle down and we can't sleep. We even resort to popping pills sometimes just to get a little bit of shut eye. David does none of that. He has an immediate sense of peace because he knows who God is. Moreover, this peace, this comfort he has, is not just a one time thing. It's not like he wakes up in the morning and says, Oh man, what was I thinking? I mean, this is a crazy situation. No, no. It, it is a, a lasting, it's an ongoing peace. He says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who've set themselves against me all around. Now notice what David doesn't say. David doesn't say, I will not be afraid because you removed my foes, because you got rid of my troubles. No, the enemies are still there. They aren't gone. They're still pursuing him. They're still all around. Many thousands have set themselves against me all around. Anywhere David goes, his enemies are there. Nevertheless, he says, I'll not be afraid. I will not be afraid. Spurgeon wardens, as we think about this, will ought not be too quick and how we apply this. He says, you know, there's, there's two kinds of sleep. There is the sleep, quote, of presumption. God deliver us from it. He's talking about a kind of let go and let God mentality that is not helpful, that is not taught in the scriptures. That when trouble or difficulty comes, we just lay down and do nothing about it and say, oh, well, God will take care of it. That's not what the Bible calls us to do. It presumes on God. And perhaps keeps us from doing what we ought to do ourselves. Even as we take comfort in God, the scriptures never tell us to forsake our responsibilities. We may sleep sound in Jesus, but it better be after a long day's work. At the same time, Spurgeon says there, quote, there is also a sleep of holy confidence. And God help us so as to close our eyes in sleep. Though not presuming on God. We can take comfort in him. We can trust that he is good, that he is sovereign, and that he will work out the details of our lives in a, way, in a manner that is most fitting according to his will. But David goes beyond this simple comfort in God. Following the example of David's prayer, likewise, we ought to expect help from God. We ought to expect help from God. In verses seven and eight, we see the crying out to God that David mentioned earlier in verse four. This is what he cries out with. These are the words that he says. Arise, O Lord, Save me, oh my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked." When David prays, he begins by praying God's word back to him. He's quoting from Moses' prayer back in Numbers 10 when he asks the Lord to arise and defeat Israel's enemies as they break camp and set out being led by the Ark of the Covenant, marching toward the promised land. It's a a battle cry that that all of their enemies would be removed and that God would fulfill His promises. And that's exactly what David offers as well. It's a battle cry against his enemies. Notice the change in verbal tense as well. David says, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. It's not happened, it's future. It's a request. It's something he wants to see occur. But then when he gives the reason, he says, for you strike all my enemies on the the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. It's not past tense. It's not future tense. David expects that God is already doing something and will continue to do it in the future. Namely, that God is and will be defeating his enemies. Notice how they're described. Like wild animals, they have surrounded him and are biting and nipping at him. But what does God do? He comes in and he slaps them across the face and knocks them back into place. David says, you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Just as they tried to shame and humiliate the Lord's anointed, so also he will now shame and humiliate them as he gives victory to David. Why will he do this? Verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. David is is confident of God's covenant with Israel. Now again, don't, don't just read over that quickly. Think about who is writing this. Think about the situation he's in. This is why the superscription helps in my opinion. David has confidence in God's covenant with him, but now he expresses confidence in God's covenant with Israel. What's Israel doing right now? They're rebelling against David. They've rejected him as king. He's had to flee for his life. And yet here is David, not angry, not bitter. He still wants good for them. He still wants the blessing of salvation on the people of Israel. It's it's the mark of a true shepherd that even at the lowest point, he is still thinking about the welfare of the sheep. All along he's been saying that or that I've been saying, rather, that David's prayer is a model for us, that his God-centeredness is something we should imitate. But if we're to do that well, we must go a step further. We have to realize that though we can completely we can completely trust God, if He wills it, our lives may not be spared in any given situation. If you're in a community group, in just a few weeks, as we make our way through the book of Acts. You will see in the course of just a few verses, James, the brother of Jesus, Dies. He's killed by the Romans, but Peter goes free. Did God not like James? Was he not a good little brother to Jesus? I don't think so. I don't think that was it at all. It's rather showing the wisdom of God's sovereign plan that some fall by the sword and some do not. So sometimes we cry out to God to the best of our abilities. We have no sin that would hinder our prayers. We have no lifestyle that is so against the way of the Lord that he would not listen to us, and circumstances change, and other times, nothing changes. Sometimes we are spared from physical suffering. Other times, most times, we die. So how can we still have confidence and comfort in God? Well, remember that last part, in God. It is not His gifts, but in God Himself that we find confidence and comfort and help. Specifically, The God who took on flesh and experienced all of these things that David did, but in far greater ways. I mean, the parallels here between David and Christ are too obvious to miss. Just as David was rejected as king by his people, so was Christ. Rejected as king over his people. John says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. John chapter 1. Though David escaped out of Jerusalem, Christ was led out of Jerusalem to be killed. Though David was able to lay down and sleep and wake again for the Lord sustained him, the Lord Jesus laid down in death and was brought back awake to life because the Lord sustained him. Though God saved saved David, his anointed from physical death, God saved Jesus, the greater anointed one, through physical death. Just as David loved his people despite their rebellion, so also Christ loved even those who crucified him, asking God to forgive them and saving others into his kingdom after he rose again, even sinners like us. Perhaps most significant of all, though God struck David's enemies, in our place he struck Christ. We were once God's enemies. The battle cry lifted up against us, but the Son stepped in the path for us. So when you are hard-pressed on every side, you need to remember, number one, that Christ knows exactly what you're experiencing. He's experienced all the same things, only more so. But more than that, you need to remember that he endured all that you are going through and more to bring you to God. Christ's sufferings and triumph were redempted. So Christ is our shield who absorbs the blows of judgment we deserve from God. Christ is our glory and the lifter of of our head who gives us dignity and honor despite our sin and our rebellion against his heavenly father. Christ is our high priest who brings us to God as sons, ensuring that God always hears our prayers. He will never leave us as orphans. So now when we cherish the fact that salvation belongs to the Lord, that his blessings are poured out on his people, we rejoice all the more because we realize the amazing victory it means for us. Even our spiritual enemies, even our own sinful hearts lay defeated and humbled and disgraced at the feet of the resurrected Christ. So this morning, I invite you to look to Christ. Look to God in Christ, confident that we will experience the Lord's salvation through Him. We can trust that though God may not save us from shame and death like David, He has promised to save us through shame and death just as He saved Christ. As James Johnson says, this morning, this week, the next year, you may be hard-pressed. Your family or close friends may turn against you. You might lose your job. You might lose your life. Your own children may turn against you, steal from you, hurt you. The promises of the gospel, though, is that when you lie down, you will sleep and you will wake up again for the Lord will sustain you. Father, we are thankful for that sustaining work that has been secured for us by the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We, f- we pray, God, as we read Psalm 3 again, that we will reflect on the confidence that David has in you and the greater confidence that we can have. Because you have more perfectly fulfilled all of these things in your Son. Father, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Him as we run this race of life that you have set before us in this sin-ravaged world where Satan, the world, and even our own flesh would threaten to undo us. God, may we trust in our Savior Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.